Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. And thank you. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you, Dennis, for that very uh, unexpected introduction. My dog's actually Holly Joy. <laughs> and I do, I do love her very much. So thank you very much, church, for being gracious to allow me to speak to you and how the Lord has spoken to me. Uh, when I thought about an appropriate passage, since I became one of the first elders, I thought, well, I thought it'd be appropriate to talk about eldership, what its position is, what its duties are, and what its position actually entails. One of the primary passages in Titus, actually, I'm sorry, one of the primary passages on eldership occurs in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. However, because we are good students and we don't just pick and choose our passages, we learn them in context. I realized that after reading it and studying it, it'd be appropriate for me to actually give you the background, the context in which it was written. The context of eldership actually occurs in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, basically the four verses before that. And I thought it would be best to make sure that we have proper context and pro a proper background before we talk about eldership, to necessarily talk about what those surrounding circumstances were when he actually gave the instructions on it. And of course, in true grace and exegetical fashion, it would be wrong for me just to pick out a passage, right, and just talk about it. We, we have to go through it step by step, no matter how long it takes. So because of that, we will begin our study today in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And at some point, Lord willing, and if I ever have the opportunity to come up, up here again, I will continue through verses 5 through 9 and basically give you a summary of eldership and continue through Titus. So a little bit of background. Titus was a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And before he talks about eldership, he basically identifies himself in the Christian faith. He identifies himself in Christ Jesus, basically describing the characteristics that are important to him when describing exactly what it means to be a servant or a follower of Christ. Some people have referred to this as a statement of faith. Some people refer to it as your testimony. And before I get into the specifics, I want to ask you the following question. When someone asks you to tell me more about yourself, or someone says, hey, who are you? You know, tell me about yourself, identify yourself. What do you think of? Many people identify themselves by their race, right? I'm African-American. I'm Caucasian. I'm Asian. I'm Filipino. I'm Hispanic. Others identify themselves by their city, like I'm a San Franciscan. I'm a Californian. And for many, recently, I'm a Texan. Others refer to themselves basically by their jobs, their professions. I'm a doctor. I'm an engineer. I'm a mom and a dad, and I think the young people would appreciate this. I'm a social influencer. <laughs> and others identify themselves by their hobbies, right? I'm a gardener, I'm a golfer, or some here, I'm a fantasy football champion. <laughs> and why I ask you this is because what you see Paul doing here is essentially when he is asked that same question and he identifies himself, he doesn't identify himself by the fact that he's a Jew, by his race. He doesn't identify himself by his job, but he rather identifies himself through a thorough description of his faith. 
He describes the important parts of his statement of faith, his testimony. And as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, I ask you, have you ever taken the time to think about, to write about, to really lay out your own statement of faith, your own testimony, and how God has brought you to Christ? Have you ever done this and thought about, well, what are the important aspects that I need to know so that I can make sure that I'm thorough? And how exactly I came to Christ. Because if becoming a Christian is really the most important thing that you could have in your life, then don't you think you ought to have thought about it? Or at least written it down? It's not unprecedented that stalwarts of the faith have set the example for, for us. Paul introduced himself in this way. Timothy has done this. Peter did this. Jude did this. The apostles in church history thought that it was important to write it down. In fact, the Bible even instructs us it's just as important. In 1 Peter 3.15, the Bible says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with respect and gentleness. Now, if these great people of the faith thought it was important, if these elders and pastors themselves set the example and thought it was important, if the Bible tells us it is important, then we not only need to take note of it, but in fact, I do believe we need to do it as well. Some of you may ask the question, well, this seems pretty intimidating. It seems pretty scary. How in the world am I going to do something like that? Where do I even start? Well, If you've never done this or you don't know where to start or if you've never thought about it, let me give you an encouragement that Paul, right here in Titus, verses 1 through 4, gives us an excellent outline of how exactly to do it. He breaks it down. He gives us some of the most essential components in identifying the characteristics of a good and an excellent testimony. So, will you please join me in turning to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, as we unpack how exactly he does this. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, from the New American Standard Version. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Verse 4 to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The passage today helps us in creating a thorough and an excellent statement of faith. Now here he gives us five characteristics of an excellent testimony. Five characteristics. This list is not exhaustive. It's not every characteristic is somehow commanded in the Bible. But I will let you know that this gives us a very excellent outline in helping you write out and think through your own testimony. So let's begin. The first characteristic is that it establishes or identifies your role. The first characteristic is that it identifies your role. Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Originally, I asked you, when, you when, I, when I asked you, how do you identify yourselves? Tell me about yourselves. Oftentimes, we, we talked about race. We talked about gender. We talked about your job. But how many of you 
have ever identified yourself as a slave? You ever call yourself a servant to anybody? Because that is exactly what Paul is saying here. He doesn't say that I'm a Jew. He doesn't say that I'm a man. He doesn't say that I'm a Pharisee or even that I come from a line of the chosen people. The very first thing that he calls himself is a slave. How humbling an example that is for us. But surprisingly, he's not the only one who has called himself a slave, a.k.a. a bondservant. Timothy has done this in Philippians chapter 1. James did this in James chapter 1. Peter did this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Jude did this in in Jude chapter 1. They all called themselves bondservants of Christ. Now, Paul could have established his authority by saying that I was part of the strictest Pharisee, that I was one of the most devoted and devout people, both in thought and in action. But he doesn't do any of these things. Instead, he makes the most simplest, humbling statement that I am, in fact, a slave to Jesus Christ. And throughout the New Testament, this word is used metaphorically to describe someone who's absolutely devoted to Jesus Christ. In fact, historical records reveal that it wasn't unusual for people to have slaves at the time. That's why you'll hear, actually, a lot of the times when Jesus will tell you a story. Jesus will describe a parable. He often uses the reference of a slave, right, or a servant. And even in his own words, in Mark 9.35, you hear this. He says, Jesus taught that the greatest in the kingdom would have to become a servant of all. A servant of all. What makes this even more powerful is that Paul was a Roman citizen, Roman citizens were the elite citizens. There is no way that a Roman citizen would ever be called a slave. There is no way that a Roman citizen would ever be under any type of master. Sound familiar? As Americans, we ourselves would be farthest from, the tr- would be farthest from ever calling ourselves a slave. Right? And I think this obviously dates back to the Declaration of Independence in which we would not have someone rule over us. Nobody is going to tell us what to do. And if you try to capture us, you try to enslave us, you better believe that the might of the American military will come crashing down on you. Why this is so humbling humbling, is this is Paul goes farthest from the case. Paul goes in the opposite direction and says, although I have the ability to exercise my Roman citizenship, I choose not to do it for the sake of Christ. That same application should apply to us today. We live in a world that often takes pride in our own accomplishments, in what we've done. But here, when he says that I'm a slave, I want you to just kind of think about what is the implication for that. When you are a slave, you're basically saying, I have a master. I don't have a choice. I have to do everything that my master says. Paul is saying, all my thoughts and my actions and my choices are not my own. They are my master's. I do not have a choice. I must follow God. And if we identify ourselves in the same way as a slave, then we need to act like it. The world deceives us into thinking that we have all of these rights. Uh, Dennis mentioned that I'm a district attorney. I see it all the time. And for right or wrong, they're deserved. But I have the right to a hearing. I have the right to due process. I have the right to an attorney. I have the right to remain silent. Then this also bleeds into, well, I have the right not to be offended. I have the right not to have to go to church. I have the right 
not to have to t- for someone to tell me what to do. I have the right not to be corrected. Right? And that's a dangerous, dangerous position to be in. Because if we call ourselves a slave to Christ, we do not have that choice. If God tells us to pray and we're a slave, then we pray. If God tells us to fellowship and we're a slave to that, then we fellowship. If he tells us to confess, we confess. If he tells us to forgive, then we forgive no matter how hard, no matter the circumstances, no matter the sin. He gives us this privilege as a slave to say, if we're going to read our Bible, we need to read our Bible. You know, that's a, that was kind of a radical thought back then. And I would say it's even more, after all these thousands of years, continues to be a radical thought even today. He provides us additional context to this when not only does he call himself a slave, but he refers to himself as an apostle. And for those of you who don't know, the word apostle means that somebody who's actually sent out. This, re- this refers to someone who is sent out by Christ to complete the mission. Right? And so he's doing this willingly, gladly, wholeheartedly, permanently. He's committed to his mission to Christ. So let's get into the mindset of identifying ourselves as who we really are. We're really bond servants. We're really slaves. And are you eager to call yourself that? Because if we are going to identify ourselves as slaves to Christ in a statement of faith, then, it, then this is a powerful example that Paul brings to us. And I, and I guarantee you this. If some of you are identifying yourself, you're identifying who you are, and you refer to yourself as a slave first, that will probably, probably raise some questions, right? Nobody calls himself a slave. Nobody calls himself a servant. But I guarantee you, you do that once or twice, they'll certainly open the doors for you to talk about God in just probably the most blessed and awesome sense in the way that it could be described. So, it doesn't stop there. This is one of the first characteristics. The second characteristic of an excellent testimony is that it identifies your creator. It identifies your creator. Look at verse 1b. It says, for the faith of those chosen of God. For the faith of those chosen of God. And now you see who exactly he's writing this for. He reveals and identifies that this is for the chosen of God of people. I'm sorry, for those chosen of God. These are for the chosen people of God. You were not chosen by accident. You were deliberately chosen. God thought about you to inherit the kingdom of God. And when did this happen? Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 5 tells exactly when that happened. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. So he chose us since the beginning of time. So not only did he choose us, we live in this world. What did he choose us for? Romans 8, 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So you are chosen to be God's people so that you can be heir to the riches of God's kingdom. The world looks at this completely differently. When we think of an inheritance, right, or when we think of a hierarchy of some sort, we often think of it as the roll of the dice. And the most recent example that I could think of is when recently the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, passed away. Uh, Her heirs are pretty much spelled out for her, right? It's become King Charles 
And I think that even if something happens to King Charles, it then becomes his son, who is Prince William, not Prince Harry anymore, right? And then eventually becomes Prince William's son. All of these are laid out, right? This, this specific hierarchy, hierarchy is laid out. Now, when you think about this, all of this is a roll of the dice. Nobody actually knows who their kids are going to be. They just happen to be put in that position. It's the same of your parents or your kids. You don't necessarily get to choose who your kids are, right? But our inheritance is the opposite. God chose us. He thought about us since the beginning of time that you would become a specific instrument and you would become a specific tool to you be used for his glory. So what are you going to do about it? I... Um, I tried to look up something in which, uh, how, or ask the question, how did the royals actually prepare to become part of royalty, right? What kind of trainings involved? What do you actually have to do? How do you have to think about it? I found this really interesting article, and I want to share it with you. Everything you eat, how you act, how you think, how you dress, how you act in public, the children of the royal family are given rigorous training to prepare for big events like the Platinum Jubilee or other appearances that they may make. Etiquette training for the royals starts as soon as they're old enough to sit at the table. They're raised having formal meals, going to formal events, and practicing everything from voice levels, dressing appropriately, and even, of course, how to curtsy and bow. The article says that everything they eat, they, how they act, how they think, how you dress, how you act in public, all of these things are required for them to study. And as believers, it just got me thinking that don't you think that this at a minimum should apply to us in the same way? If we are to call ourselves, call our God a creator, and we know that we are to experience the riches of the glory in the kingdom, then it goes even beyond these actions because we know that we have a heart for the Lord and we're not eating and curtsying and raising our voices, not just for the sake of appearance, but we're doing it because we're doing it for the sake of Christ. We represent God. And as a parent, I often identify themselves. We sometimes, fortunately, unfortunately, we identify the kids with the parents, right? We identify the kids with the parents. And sometimes, and oftentimes, that's often unfair, but we do it. I was walking some of these uh, kids uh, during Halloween, I told one of the kids, hey, just go down the block. When you see the stop sign, I want you to make a right. And because these kids are smaller, I asked him, do you know the difference between your right and your left hand? And you know what his response to me was? I already know. Do I look dumb? I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, we want to go there, right? <laughs> and you know this is a little bit shocking, right? But he said that to me. And, you know, some of the things that you hear, you know, get out of here or I don't want that. It's appalling, and sometimes, unfairly or fairly, we attribute the actions of that child specifically to the parent. And why I give you that example is because it's in the same way we are, our we are the children of our Creator. Your actions reflect a Creator. And hopefully, you guys don't just act this way because we need to look good like the royals do. We act this way because we have a sincerity of heart that we not only want to glorify God, but obviously reflect that in our own creator. There is a warning for those who do not acknowledge that he is a creator out of Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. It says, Remember also your creator in the days of youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. 
enjoy the process of remembering your creator now while you can. Because it says if you do not, you will not only get used to not recognizing who God is, but man, it is a scary thought that as you go into older age and as you become older and you get used to not knowing God, that you will not know God at the end. So let that be a warning that we heed. Well, establishing your creator is a second component and a privilege. A third component of creating an excellent testimony is that it identifies your authority. It identifies your authority. Look at verse 1b. And the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. The knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So knowledge comes from the word to know something. What does it mean to know something? Well, when we think of knowledge, we think of being familiar with it, with a, with a particular subject matter. The word knowledge is an understanding or recognizing something. It means to be or to perceive or be aware of it, right? I know about the law. I know about finances. I know about politics. I know about human resources. Is this the type of knowledge that the verse is referring to? Uh, without having a pun, the, no pun intended. No. Right? The verse itself says it's not a worldly type of knowledge, but the knowledge, what? According to godliness. So what does this mean? What's the difference? From a worldly perspective, knowledge is something that we're just familiar with, and it just stops right there. The Bible even has a warning for just having worldly knowledge, and it tells us that knowledge puffs up. That's out of 1 Corinthians 8.1. Worldly knowledge can puff you up. We all know somebody who knows everything, and they're not shy about telling you everything that they know, right? It makes them very prideful. It makes it seem like I'm better than you. But this verse tells us that this is not the type of knowledge that we are to have. Knowledge according to godliness actually implies a relationship. It carries the idea of a deeper appreciation of something or a relationship with somebody. So when the Bible says Adam knew Eve, he didn't just know her. He obviously had a relationship, a deep relationship with her. When Jesus is, uses the word to know, he's referring to something deeper. John ten fourteen says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. He told the disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free out of John eight thirty two. And the opposite is true. Jesus is actually at some point referring to unbelievers, unbelieving Jews, right? So these are people in the line, and he refers to unbelieving Jews, and he rebukes them by saying, you do not know my father. John 8, verse 55 says that. So simply being aware of God's existence is not enough. It's not sufficient. When you write or think about your statement of faith, and he calls you to know Christ. It is to have a deeper appreciation of faith for him, to have a relationship. I know my dad, right? I know that he likes beef stew. He could, I could go, I could go into the fields of Japan and buy the best Wagyu steak, right? Wagyu cow. I could go and get organic, you know, celery, potatoes, and everything with no chemicals on it. It's really dirty. And create beef stew, I could give it to him and he could say, it's okay. I could go to a Michelin star restaurant, five stars, order beef stew from them, give it to him. And he could say, oh, it's okay. But if, it, if I open a can of, and I don't know, I hope most of you do, a can of Dinty Moore <laughs> beef stew where the beef has been processed probably for years 
and we don't know what parts of the beef they are. There are vegetables in there that have been preserved for obviously a number of years with a sauce that who knows what's in it. I could give it to him, and he also could say okay, but oftentimes he actually says, oh, actually, no, this is pretty good. (laughs) There's a few issues with that there, right? But I know my father. I know the fact of when he says something's pretty good, either I'm doing something wrong or he actually appreciates the can of Dinty Moore beef stew. God's desire, is, God's desire for us is for us to know him and appreciation, appreciate him in that way. In fact, he identifies himself as embodiment of knowledge out of Romans 1, 19 through 20, where he says, Christ in whom all the treasures of wisdom and, um, I'm sorry, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible makes clear that knowledge of, the knowledge of God is the most valuable knowledge, and it's encouraging for us that we know when, he, when we ask for knowledge that he provides it. As a Christian, we need to be growing in the knowledge of God, and if we're not doing it, then that is a problem. I believe that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Bible affects our worship, our prayer life, it affects how we interact and view God. I love my daughter. She's playing in a recital this year the oh-so-familiar song of Jesus loves me, this I know. You know, the Bible tells, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know. And one of the warnings that I always think about and I hate about is that this is a song that we learn when we're little, right? We learn about Jesus loves me. We go to Sunday school. We learn about Jesus loves me, this I know. As we grow up and we get into our youth and we get into our college, oftentimes, yeah, we know that Jesus loves me, this I know, but we never grow in that progression of knowing who God is. We only know God or Jesus as Jesus loves me, this I know, and it's like this, right? It's, it's shallow. I, I love how MacArthur puts it, John MacArthur. He says that shallow worship comes from a shallow understanding of God. So if you only know Jesus loves me, this I know as God, then your prayer life will be focused on that. Your conversations, your conviction, your beliefs about God will be limited to Jesus loves me, this I know. However, if we know the actual deeper characteristics of God and we know and learn more about him, then that affects our worship. If you know the characteristics of God, that he is in fact our creator, out of Nehemiah 9, verse 6, that he is an almighty God, out of Psalm 89, 8, that he's an everlasting God, out of Daniel 7, 9, that he's a loving God, out of 1 John 4, 16, he's a just God, out of Romans 3, 26, a faithful God, a merciful God, a patient God, an eternal saving God, a holy God, a forgiving God, out of Nehemiah 9, 17, a healing God, out of Exodus 15, 26, just to name a few characteristics. If we understand that, then our worship, then our prayer, then our conversations will be deeper than just, Jesus loves me, this I know. It affects us that much more, and we have a deeper relationship with Christ, and we understand that God is so much more than just that. Do you seek to know more than the philosopher who just loves to debate, or the Mormon who loves to go out and evangelize, or even just the kid sometimes who learns in catechism class in Catholic school because he wants to get some sort of certificate. The Bible tells us that worldly knowledge pales in comparison to the truth 
of the Bible and warns us that godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is called knowledge can be a danger to us. Well, that's a third factor. A fourth component that Paul gives us in identifying a great statement of faith is that it identifies your future. Is that it identifies your future. Verses 2 through 3. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. The legitimacy of God's word here is emphasized and supported with several different phrases. And he uses, he uses it by, as actually mentioned before, identifying some of the characteristics of God. He identifies God as someone who cannot lie. And he has such conviction that this was promised long ages ago. If you look at the attitude here that he has, it absolutely is amazing. It should blow our minds because he has faith in eternal life. And as I know it here, and if you read into the passage, he has faith in eternal life and he has had no opportunity to see the fullness of eternal life even at this point yet. He has had no understanding or the fullness of heaven other than on his road to Damascus where he becomes, you know, Saul to Paul. He only see a, he sees a, a small glimpse of who God really is. He doesn't really even see the full glory of who God is and yet he has an absolute conviction and absolute excitement that eternal life will come because God is a God who does not lie and he promised this ages ago. He goes on when he says that the word of God was manifested through a proclamation. Basically, the word of God was, was revealed in his own perfect will and his own perfect time. Why it's important is because I guess God could have created a beginning. He could have created an end. And then from there he said, okay, the believers will go to heaven and then the unbelievers will go to hell. He didn't do that here. Instead, he decided in my own glorious fashion. In our own time period, in this own, in our own lifetime, it glorifies me most to reveal his word. And it's something that a promise that I can give to you and entrust you to be able to share with your body of believers. Frankly, it takes a strong type of faith to be able to have this type of conviction, right? At this time, we have to remember Christianity was still new at the time. These people were being persecuted. These people were being killed. They were being imprisoned. And he had such faithfulness to know and certainty to know that eternal life laid at the end for his life. You know, that's similar if you, know, if, if you say that you're an American and you're proud to be an American and you say, I'm going to fight for America. It's different when that happens and you say that in peacetime, right? But in wartime, if people are attacking you and you are in fact fighting and you say, I am an American and I will in fact fight for America, it gives you a different type of conviction, right? Because you're actually in the midst of it. It's scarier. It's more dangerous. But Paul even goes beyond that because even in this example where if you are an American and you're fighting for America in a war, he is describing something that, that they cannot see even now. He has not seen that glimpse of eternal life even yet. And yet his faithfulness is the example that he leaves to us because of the promise God made ages ago. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Because I would like to just describe how faith is actually described 
in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, uh, New American Standard Version. Now, faith. So the question here is, so what type of faith does he have, right? The faith is a certainty, certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen, for by it the people of old gain approval. Verse 3. By faith we understand that the world has been created by the word of God, so that what is seen has not been made out of things that are visible. He gives us a clear definition by faith, is a certainty of things that are hoped for. And he is, I mean, I'm not asking you to do it, but if you go through verses 4 through 11, he says, by faith, Abel offered up to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. By faith, Noah in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. By faith, verse 8, Abraham obeyed by going out to a place which he was received for an inheritance. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received an ability to conceive. By faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you that as you write your own statement of faith, that you be encouraged by the fact that eternal life will come. And this is something that should make us excited. It should make us eager. It should help us to be bold in our proclamation of God's word. Now, if you sit there and you're new here today or you're not a believer in God, we want to say thank you very much for coming to Grace. We don't think that there could be a better place for you to come. But if you don't know God, or even if you're on the borderline of, of where God is, you're in a debate about, okay, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. I'll take the time to think about it later. This is for you. I mean, I'm sorry. This eternal life is not for you. Okay, God only promises eternal life to those who actually know Christ, who have a relationship with Christ. And if you do not know him or you're wondering, our desire here at Grace and of all Christian churches is that you do, in fact, come to know Christ, that you love God, that you, alongside with our brothers and sisters in Christ, understand what it means to be called a Christian and can have that hope for eternal life. Because, as they're so dear pastor often says, the decisions that you make in this very short period of time will affect you into all eternity. And at the end, at those gates, we, wanted to be, we want to be able to worship and to see and to be able to serve alongside with you there. Okay, well, a good statement of faith identifies your role. It identifies your creator. It identifies your authority. It identifies your future. And finally, an excellent statement of faith will identify your community. It identifies your community. Verse 4. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wrote this letter to Titus. This was considered a pastoral epistle. There's actually three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And when we talk about a pastoral epistle, it's basically an older pastor, an older man, who's Paul, who's writing to a younger pastor, a younger man, who's Titus, and Titus essentially establishing the church. 
That's why when you read these pastoral type of epistles, it's almost like a how-to manual about church doc, about how a church should run, how a church should be organized. That's why you'll see in Titus and in Timothy, in the first and second Timothy, it talks about like church organization, church discipline, eldership, deacons, false teachers, women's roles, and even doctrine. But what's beautiful in this verse is that he identifies Titus as my true child in common faith. We all share in this faith together. We all have this privilege together. Titus most likely was a Gentile and he was saved through the ministry of Paul. They ministered together and Paul has such great faith in Titus's ability that he sends him off. Right? He sends them off to be able to take care of God's word. He sends them off to raise his own church to be able to be... Uh, to an extent where he actually calls him my brother, my partner, and fellow worker. When we identify our own statement of faith, how many times do we mention each other? Right? I, for one, am privileged to work side along all of you. And as part of the completion of this text, he identifies himself with the community that he serves alongside with. We are a community together and we are bonded in common faith. It requires us to interact with, one or, uh, interact with one another, to serve alongside with one another, to actually fellowship and to get to know each other in our own lives. The attitude that Paul has here is that he has full confidence in Titus's ability to minister to his people. And you know how you know that? Because if you go through Titus, he has really no correction about doctrinal issues in there. He believes that Titus can run his church. Other than an area where they talk about false teacher, you don't ever see any type of correction that Paul gives to Titus. And as part of our own statement of faith, we do need to identify ourselves as fellow servants, fellow workers in Christ. As I thought about this, I, I, just, I wrote a few things down, and I am thankful on this Thanksgiving weekend for the very many brothers and sisters that we get to serve alongside with here. We all have demanding ministries just as Titus had a demanding ministry, and Paul entrusted him in that. Antiagnus, we know, always has a smile along with Lewis, with the kids as I bring him into tots. We know that Carol prays. Dennis is always there, always there to help you move, even if it's refrigerators. <laughs> Josh is always there to encourage people to come together to play fantasy football or other things, like Bible study. Catherine helps now with coffee. Curtis and Lauren sing up here. Oksana leads the choir. Leslie serves at Sunday school. Winsley plays the, the cajon. Carl, Phil, Brandon, Mike, Seth, all always with the setup crew. Jessica, I think two weeks ago, brought donuts. Roger, of course, preaching. Jenny, of course, taking care of her half dozen foster kids with such a wonderful heart that she has. Amy and Jocelyn always helping to try, helping Shirley, even Vivian in the back, which I don't see today, continues to be an enthusiastic woman who tells stories about Hawaii, and that is just to name a few people. We identify ourselves not only by our own individualness, not only with God, but we do it about with our community and together in common faith. So I ask you this: when someone thinks of you, or what do they know you as? I asked you that question. Do they know you by your profession? Do they know you because you have a strong political stance about things? Do they know you because you're just some sort of jokester or something like that? Or do they actually know you by your profession of faith? Let me just give you a little caveat when you're creating a statement of faith. 
These are just some of the foundational issues that you can put into it. Each of you has been given a story by God in how you have come to faith, right? Some of you have had very difficult and straining and very trying backgrounds that brought you to Christ. Others of you had had different trials or even joys that brought you to Christ. Others of you have actually had uh, a very nice background in which you've been part of the church. You grew up. And that's not to say anything, you know, not to take away anything from that. That is a story in itself. And so when you are creating your own statement of faith and when you're reflecting back on how God has affected you in your own life and your own thought process, I want you to think about this creative, this actual active aspect in which you can personalize the statement of faith. I hope by doing so and hearing some of the outline today that you will be able to have a testimony that's not only bold, that's not only stronger, but that actually allows you to be confident in being able to state what you believe to other people. Sometimes um, one of the fun and initial exercises that I do when I meet with uh, men who either want to be discipled or we talk about is one of the very first things that I ask them to do is tell me about your testimony. And please don't just tell me a, you know, a kind of a story version. I want you to back it up with verses. I want you to back it up with something in the Bible that actually affected you when you thought about your own testimony. How is it that you came to Christ? How is it that you know God? And these are very basic, right? What's the gospel? What does it mean to be baptized, right? Who is God? If you can take the time and actually describe these things to yourself, if you can describe it and explain it to yourself, then I do believe that it does give you the confidence to be able to share those things with others. It takes time, right? It does take an effort, but it is important for us to be able to do this well. This is a reminder that these are just a few, um, there's just a few personal touches that you can add to it. Well, I do believe that Titus in here gives us an initial introduction into how we can create an excellent testimony, an excellent statement of faith. All of this, all of this is the backdrop, is the context into how Titus begins. And with it, he talks about eldership, which Lord willing, I will get into next time. Let me... shows my inexperience here. <laughs> Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I pray that these five characteristics will aid you in helping create your own excellent testimony. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks, Lord, for an absolute privilege to know that Paul, the other apostles, that you yourself have instructed us not only to know what to believe, but really to create a testimony that is powerful, that is excellent for your sake. We give you thanks, Lord, that you've given us an outline here to understand the depth of who you are since the beginning of time and how you have chosen us. 
how you have given us your word and your role, how you, through your apostle, has, have set the example through um, calling ourselves a bondservant, how you yourself, Lord, have established a hope for us in eternal life and a future. And importantly, we also give you thanks, Lord, for the community that we get to serve in. Father God, we pray that we would not take these things lightly. We pray that as we come together, both in small group and in our own individual quiet times, that we take the time to assess and think about how exactly it is that we are to write our own testimony that you have given us. Help us, Lord, to use this to propel us to be able to be more confident in sharing your word and being a light to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.